The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. This morning we are reading from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 24. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, all of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone and the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were the, all the words that the Lord has spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. <coughs> they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
they have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them <coughs> and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So, they tur so I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountains were burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets <coughs> and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord, as before forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust, and threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from me, the mountain. At Tabrath also, and Massa, and Kimbroth Hadava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent him, sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Bob. We put you to work this morning. You did good. Deuteronomy chapter 9. You heard it in verse 1. Hear, O Israel. This is a new turn for Moses. He last said, Hear, O Israel, in the Shema, the Lord is one. And now it's as if he's making a turn of points in his sermon. We're going to look at this text this morning and be benefited to see the gospel. Before we look at the text, we're going to pray, and I'm going to pray for the gathering of the 50th General Assembly of the PCA this week. We gather in Memphis. I would ask that you would all pray this week as the church gathers to do the Lord's work, and I'll pray now. Let's pray. 
Lord, we do thank you for 50 years of your kindness and faithfulness to the PCA, a small but faithful expression of your church throughout the world. Lord, as we gather this week, we ask that you would give to all those who come as commissioners wisdom, understanding the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that you would grant to all the commissioners humility, wisdom and humility. If you'll grant that, surely our gathering will honor you. So join us, we pray. We pray for safe travel for all who come from far and near. We ask that you be glorified in your church. As we come to your word this morning, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We need to hear afresh the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So come and speak, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the late, sadly, Tim Keller wrote in his book, Generous Justice, the following definition for what it meant to be poor in spirit. It means seeing that you are deeply in debt before God and you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. We go on to say that many today resist Jesus' teaching about our spiritual poverty. And he would write, on the contrary, we tend to believe that God owes us some things. He ought to answer our prayers. He ought to bless us for the many good things we have done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, we could say that rather than poor in spirit, many of us as followers of Christ are middle class in spirit. We feel that we've earned a certain standing. We've worked hard for it. We believe that that success and our work and our resources that we've put to work owe us something. You know, that's the heart of the middle class. We believe that the success and resources that we have, sadly, are often primarily due to our own industry, our own energy. We demand that we have those things we've earned protected. I think Tim Keller's right. I think far too often we are middle class in spirit rather than poor. Moses is calling the people of God as they come into the land to poverty of spirit, to rightly understand who they are and what they've been given. And that is the call for us today as the church. What do we need to hear about our story as God's people this morning? Two things. First, God provides stunning deliverance, not because of our righteousness. That's the first thing we, you and I need to hear and that Israel need to hear about their story. God provides stunning deliverance that is not because of our righteousness. Why is there stunning deliverance for I Israel? Well, first consider the nature of the stunning deliverance described in verses one and two. As they go across, the, the Canaanite people are greater, they're stronger, as the text says. The cities are fortified up to heaven, meaning they, they seem invincible. The Anakim are these enormous, giant people. And Israel is little and weak. But they're a people of promise. They, they may ask, who can stand before the sons of Anak? 
the nature of their deliverance is that no one could stand before the sons of Anak, except for their hope in verse three in the powerful God. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as, is as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Their hope for deliverance in the face of a formidable foe is in the very power and presence of God who would go before them as an advance guard, as a consuming fire, the same consuming fire that they feared so much at Sinai would now go before them on their behalf. God in his power, it says, he would destroy them in verse three. God will humble them because of their wickedness. And so you can see the nature of the stunning deliverance. Who can stand? Who could conquer? How could this be but for God? And it's important as you consider their deliverance that you understand the reason for their deliverance. And Moses is addressing a future temptation of the people of God that they would believe that their success was the result of their righteousness. The temptation of the people of God to believe that blessing and success is because of our righteousness. And God, through Moses, makes very clear. In verse 4, 5, and 6, he repeats three times, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness. It says, actually, it's because of their wickedness. Verse 5 not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. Verse six, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. Moses is preaching very clearly. Is it because of your righteousness that you inherit the land? No. No, no. What is the reason for such stunning deliverance? Is it not your military expertise? Is it not your moral excellence? No, the reason is threefold as he says in the text. Verse four, don't say it's because of your righteousness, it's because of their wickedness. Verse five, it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Promises to scoundrels, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the reason for their stunning deliverance? It is twofold. The promises of God and the justice of God upon the wicked. But it has nothing to do with the righteousness of the people of God. The reason for the stunning deliverance is because of the promises and the work of God. We'll consider our story, stunning deliverance, not because of our righteousness. What is the nature of our stunning deliverance? Well, we too have a formidable, impossible foe, sin and death. Who can stand before God as a sinner? Who can find life when the wages of sin are death? Romans 7, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's our nature, our, our dilemma. 
That's our who can stand before the sons of Anak. It's sin and death, a foe. And the reason that any of us are delivered from those foes of sin and death is not because of our righteousness, not because of our righteousness, not because of our righteousness. Hear the threefold repetition of Moses. But then even go to the New Testament and just listen to these four passages of Paul. Romans 3. For by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not in us, but in him, Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? An earning? A reward? No, a gift. A gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. In Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no man will be justified, not because of our righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through works, no, through faith. And that faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. You see, the the justification by faith apart from works leads to humility, to rejoicing, no boasting. And then Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The gospel is right here in Deuteronomy 9. What is the reason for stunning deliverance for the people of God then and the people of God now? It is not because of our righteousness. It is because of the promised work of God in Jesus Christ. So just like Israel, we might ask, Why has the Lord done this for us? Why has the Lord been so good to us? Why has the Lord done this for us? You know, in suffering, we often ask, why did the Lord do this to us? In blessing, we ask, why has the Lord been so good for us? And here's the answer always. It's not because of us. The Lord's goodness to us in Jesus, the Lord's goodness in giving us a land, of giving us blessing, is not because we've been good. God has been good to us, not because we've been good to God. For we, like Israel, are a stubborn people. We are blessed because God is merciful to sinners in his Son. You know, the only only contribution we make to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. We contribute nothing else. 
We must, as the people of God, never forget that we are sinners saved by grace. It is so easy to think we deserve something from God. It is so easy to drift into thinking I earn something and I have a right to it. But the people of God then and now are called to know it is not because of your righteousness. It is the gift of God's mercy. Secondly, what do we need to hear about our story as God's people? God provides merciful intercession because of our unrighteousness, 7 through 24. Again, clearly in verses 7 through 24, as if Moses had not made his point in verse 4 through 6, it's not because of you. He goes on in verse 7. He says, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. That's framed by verse 24. You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Moses gives a clear description of sinful rebellion in and among the people of God. Just consider his general descriptions. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness. That's arrogance. Verse 6 and 13, he calls them stubborn, stiff-necked. It's actually an image of an ox or a donkey that doesn't go where you want and bows their neck. He says, that's you. Verses 7 and 24, he calls them rebellious. Verse 8 and 18, as he shows his anger, they're provocative. They're provoking God to anger. They're corrupt in verse 12. They're idolatrous in 12 and 16. They're called sinful in 16, evil in 18, unbelieving in 23, and disobedient in 23. So let's hear what describes the people of God. How about it? Arrogant, stubborn, rebellious, provocative, corrupt, idolatrous, sinful, evil, unbelieving, and disobedient. And that's not them then, that's us now. Our story is of pervasive unrighteousness among us. That that we understand that and never move away from that so that we can rejoice all the more in the grace of God, humbly and gladly celebrating God's grace to us. But as if his general description wasn't enough, he narrows in on some specific accounts. And he goes to Horeb in verses 7 through 17, Sinai. This week, the the disobedience of the people struck me in its gravity. As I had studied this passage and studied it in close proximity to performing a wedding. God is declaring his covenant love and giving of life to the people. Sinai is the covenant ceremony. The tablets are like the marriage certificate. God wrote in his hand his covenant. And they are turning against him at the reception. As horrible as that may seem to even imagine a wedding where one of the parties breaks covenant at the reception. That's what happened at Sinai. 
Aaron led the rebellion saying this newly manufactured image had brought them out of Egypt attributes to an object, the saving deliverance from the Egyptians. And so what does Moses do? He smashes the two tablets. A prophetic sign that the covenant had been broken and they hadn't even left the wedding venue. God then in verse 14 and 19 through 20 is angry enough to destroy them. It seems to me that Moses reminds them of this anger from God to say, listen, as you go in and drive out and destroy the Canaanites, remember this, if anyone deserved to be destroyed, it was you long ago. When God's wrath and displeasure burned against you, So do not go in there prideful as you see the wicked destroyed. Go in there humble, but for grace. But for grace. We wouldn't be even in this land. He would have destroyed us at the mountain. And then in case they wanted to say Sinai was just a one-off, like, hey God, that was a bad day. Aaron made a mistake. That was an isolated incident. Well, the scene of the golden calf, as one has written, is simply, yes, the most horrendous illustration of their congenital and ingrained stubbornness. But in case they wanted to say that was a one-off event, he gives them other examples. Verse 22, Tabera, where they rebels complain about their difficulties. Massa, the testing, where they quarrel with Moses to such an extent that he fears for his very life, Exodus 17. They wish they never left Egypt. They doubt God's presence with them in Massa. At Kibrith Hatava, it's called Graves of Craving in Numbers 11. They begin to reflect glowingly on Egypt. Oh, how we miss Egypt the plentiful food, how how quick they are to forget the bondage of slavery. And there, they don't threaten Moses' life like they did at Massa, but at Kibroth Hatava, Moses just wants to die because of the rebellious people. And then at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 through 14, the people of God dismiss God's promises and rebel in unbelief and disobedience. So what Moses has done first point, your stunning deliverance is not because of your righteousness. Second point, he says, you need merciful intercession because of your unrighteousness. And let me show you how bad it is. All those descriptor words, takes them to Sinai, then takes them to four other spots and says, it's really true. You're way worse than you think. That's really true. We're all way worse than we think. But for the grace of God. Deuteronomy is fascinating. Because after he has said twice that he will destroy them because of the wickedness of these nations, verse 4, he will destroy them because of the wickedness of these nations, verse 5, I would expect that what Moses might do next is offer a litany of the wickedness of the nations. But he goes into the unrighteousness of the people of God. I think there's something for us there. 
You see, I want to ask this question. Are we more concerned about the wickedness of the world or the rebellion and unrighteousness among God's people? Do you know how easy it is for the people of God to focus on the wickedness of the world and to step away and think we're better and we're deserving? Moses is calling them, don't you just think about their wickedness. You discern the unrighteousness in your heart and you go in there as a people rescued by grace and mercy. And when we reckon with our sinfulness, we step into the world of wickedness as people of grace and mercy and humility and gladness because we understand our own unrighteousness. Do we really reckon daily with our unrighteousness before God? A scene from one of George MacDonald's children's books called The Princess and Curdie illustrates this as this novel young boy named Curdie points and shoots an arrow into a white pigeon. Suddenly he is overcome by remorse that he has killed this old princess's white pigeon. He carries the wounded bird to her to see if anything can be done to save it. And the woman turns and is suddenly more concerned about the boy than the bird. And gently she tries to help Curdie recognize that his evil deed sprang from an all-pervasive wickedness of his heart. When finally he confesses his sinful condition, listen to what he says. I see now that I've been doing wrong the whole day and such a many days besides. Indeed, I don't know when I ever did right. When I killed your bird, I did not know I was doing wrong just because I was always doing wrong. And the wrong had soaked all through me. Do we realize that the wrong has soaked all through us? And but for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, merciful intercession because of our unrighteousness, and that's what we see. In verses 18 through 21, Moses, at the sight of the rebellion of people of God, says, then I lay prostrate before the Lord. Why? Because of their unrighteousness, because of all the sin that they had committed. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you that, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me. Verse 20. Lord was angry with Aaron, and I prayed for Aaron at the same time. What you are seeing there is an anticipation of Jesus. Without a mediator between the holy, awesome God and the sinful people of God, they would be destroyed. But Moses serves as the mediator and intercedes for the people. Exodus 32, 30, Moses knows exactly what he's going to do. He says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Listen to what he says. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement 
for your sin. Moses' intercession stays the wrath of God, but he was not the perfect mediator. Perfect mediator, Hebrews tells us, was the one who is to come. You see, what we need, all of us in our unrighteousness, is someone like Moses. We need someone to intercede for us, someone to turn away God's wrath. And the message of the gospel is that God has given us a perfect final mediator in Jesus Christ. When you hear that text where the Lord says to Moses, now arise, arise, verse 11, and go on your journey, or excuse me, verse chapter, I was in chapter 10. In verse 9, when he says, chapter, verse 12, Arise, go down quickly, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. Go all the way to heaven, not to a mountain where Moses comes down. Take it all the way to heaven and hear the conversation of heaven where God says, Arise, Jesus, go down. Go down. Go down because your people, the ones I have given you from all eternity, have become corrupt and they are living in sin and they have turned away from my law to worship other gods. And if you do not intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by wrath. Go down, Jesus. Go down. And he goes down. He provides atonement through his blood. And he ascends and is at the right hand of God interceding for us so that Paul would say in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And Hebrews 9, 15 would say, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, think the land, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Our story is one of stunning deliverance, not because of our unrighteousness. Our story is one of merciful intercession because of our unrighteousness in the greater Moses, Jesus. I close with this. Nathaniel Hawthorne in his classic novel, The Scarlet Letter in 1850, tells the story about Hester a woman in puritanical New England who is condemned for committing adultery and is forced to wear a scarlet letter A as a mark of her shame. One character in the novel, Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, serves as a poignant example of someone who minimizes his own sinfulness. Dimsdale is the reverend, the revered minister of the community, and he secretly bears the guilt of his affair with Hester. He presents himself as a paragon of virtue to his congregation while privately struggling with the weight of his hidden sin. I tell you that because I'm asking us and calling us from the authority of Moses and God and his word. We must not be a people who hide and minimize our sin. We must not be a people who minimize our sin by pointing to our virtue and our goodness and our deservingness. No, we must be a people more like Curdy who recognize I'm a soaked sinner all the way through. But we have a mediator. 
Jesus, who has stayed the wrath of God forever. And now we have hope to walk in this land and fight as people of grace who are humbled and absolutely overwhelmed with joy. But for the grace of God, go I. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel in Deuteronomy. We thank you for stunningly delivering us because of your work, your righteousness, your promise. Would you help us cultivate a life of deeper repentance that we understand our unrighteousness, we don't minimize it so that we're humbled, so that we're glad in grace. Thank you, Jesus, for going down, mediating the new covenant with your blood, ascending into heaven and interceding for us. As Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Jesus interceding for me right now, I wouldn't fear anything. Oh, make it so, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.